Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week, I'm just here to introduce with John Norton a conversation that John recorded a few days ago in Oxford with Phil Howard. And John's just going to tell us a bit about who Phil Howard is and why this is such an important subject for this podcast. And when you hear it, you'll, you'll recognise some of these themes because we keep coming back to them. We are really interested in what digital technology is doing to politics. So, John, why is Phil Howard such an important person to discuss this with? He's a very interesting person because he's, he's an academic who has done a great deal of the early empirical and ethnographic research in this area. So he's actually gone out into the field, as it were. Yes, in in interesting ways. Um, He's a sociologist by background, and he started by becoming an intern on the Gore and Bush campaigns in the 2000 presidential election. And from observing what happened on those campaigns, he began to appreciate the way in which a small number of geeks had developed interesting and powerful ideas about how you could use this technology to shape public opinion. And so that led to a very good book, in my opinion, which is about the managed citizen. And he came to my attention because here was somebody who was sociologically informed, understood the importance of ethnography in this area, and had begun to understand what the capabilities of the technology were for politics. And he's track this over quite a long period. I mean, you, if you'll forgive me saying so, you've tracked it over a longer period, right? You've followed the arc of this technology from the beginning. And you use this phrase, which I like, one of the things you hate, is what you call the sociology of the last five minutes, which is what a lot of discussion of digital technology comes down to, the very, very latest thing. So you and Phil both have, in this context, historical perspective on this. There's a history to the excitement And then, for both of you, I think, to some of the disappointment. There is a history, and I think in order to make progress now, we need to be able to take a longer view. And the purpose of the conversation, in a way, was to to try and take that longer view, because here was somebody, Phil is now the Professor of Internet Studies at Oxford, at the Internet Institute. He was somebody who had started from the beginning and had tracked it in empirical and ethnographic ways, because after he had sussed the way in which a very small number of tech-savvy people who are interested in politics could actually use the technology for, in order to shape dialogues and in order to shape public opinion and so on. He also noticed that these characters then dispersed across the world, like political consultants have done in more traditional areas, and that they had begun to, as it were, sell or to deploy the things they had learned on the Gore-Bush presidential campaign in other societies. His next venture then was to see what does all this look like when it is deployed in authoritarian societies. And we all remember, in a sense, that it's gone through phases, but one of the high points of the up phase of the political potential of this technology was the Arab Spring. And Phil studied that, and we'll hear about that in a minute. But that feeling has dissipated too. I mean, in a sense, it's not just a single arc. It's um, There are ups and downs along the way of this story. I mean, you've seen more than most, right? That there's excitement, then there's a certain amount of disillusionment, and then there's the next wave of excitement. And I mean, if you just take this week, I mean, this week that we're speaking, you've both got 
there's a new iPhone. <laughs> That's the excitement. And this relentless barrage of news stories about fake news, about how the Russians are using Facebook, Hillary Clinton's account of how she lost the presidential election, this constant competition between a still a kind of techno-euphoria and this undercurrent of gloom. Yes, and the, that tech-euphoria tends to obscure things that are also connected with technology, but probably much more important. For example, this week we saw a colossal data breach at one of the three big credit rating agencies in the United States, Equifax. They lost 143 million data files on the credit records of American citizens. That's a colossal failure. And it raises the question, for example, what will happen to Equifax after this? And the answer probably is that almost nothing will happen. Why? Because the modern capitalist economy can't operate without those credit agencies. And there are only three of them. So we suddenly have uh, arrived at a point where we have a mundane a company which we thought was nothing to do with the exciting stuff that goes on in Silicon Valley and the rest of it, but actually is, is critical to the operation of a modern economy. It has suffered a colossal data breach in which incredibly valuable data, personal data from people, has been stolen. Um, but nothing will happen for the same reason that nobody went to jail after 2008 in the banking catastrophe. The reason is that this company, this this it's a tech company, in a way. It's too important to be taken down. So you describe yourself, and, and Phil Howard in a way as well, as recovering utopians. But as we'll hear in a minute, I think he is still more hopeful than you are about where this might all end up. I think he is more hopeful than I am. The reason we're still, as we're recovering utopians, is because the technology retains all of its capacity for empowerment, for democratisation, for, for liberating creativity, all that kind of stuff. The technology hasn't changed that much. It's just that what has happened to it by way of control of it and the uses that it now has been put to in most societies has led to really terrifying prospects, I think. Phil still seems to be more optimistic that the juggernaut can in some way be stopped in its tracks, or if not stopped, it can be diverted into more democratically useful pathways. John and Phil spoke in Oxford a few days ago, and the conversation begins with this question. How do you keep the hope alive? Many of the people studying this stuff now are also wrestling with the challenge of how to stay enthusiastic or upbeat or keep the utopian hope alive at a moment when so many political actors are using this exciting technology to silence us and push people around. So that first book was a study of how the Gore and the Bush campaigns were using information technology to reach voters. And my goal was to figure out if the new technology was creating new opportunities for political conversations. And the 2000 election was important because for several major elections in the U.S., the Internet was used in very exciting ways to get lots of small political donations from people who weren't big party donors, but they'd give $200 from their paycheck to support a candidate that they passionately believed in. They were using the Internet to talk about politics in ways that didn't involve the Democratic Party 
or the Liberal Party or the late or Labour, they were in little rooms chatting about democracy in a very uh, small scale and grounded way. And I wasn't sure that all that exciting new kind of deliberation was actually percolating up into formal politics, right, where people vote. So I got a job with the Gore campaign and got a job with the Bush campaign in the technology groups and followed them around for the election cycle. As you may remember, that cycle went into overtime, right? It was a, it ended up being 14 months of field work. And one of the things I learned is that the technologists who were working for both the Democrats and the Republicans were essentially the same small network. It was the same group of about 20 people who were mostly boys. This is Joe Trippi and Co., is that right? This is pre-Trippi. And like a lot of ethnographers, I did pseudonyms for all my human subjects. But they were guys who graduated with an undergrad degree in political science from elite universities in the U.S. And they were now working for their favorite candidate, maybe, but they believed in technology. Their higher calling was to use the internet to revolutionize the way democracy works. The outcome of that story was that the community had to make a sort of normative trade-off and they ended up producing technologies that we now still play with but technologies that violate almost everybody's privacy norms so the way that they saw to get new voters participating in the politics to use the internet to, to attract people to politics basically violated their own privacy rights, too. They all would say things like, well, I know this doesn't look good, but I've just bought the voter registration files for a million voters, and we're going to play with it this way, and we're going to add on their health data, their credit card data. I've just bought some great credit card data from a company in Texas. We're going to put it all together, and we're going to send out blast emails. And this was the creative work at that time inside the campaigns. And this was before... Howard Dean broke fundraising records before Obama used Facebook networks to really organize Democrats and before Trump used advertising to spread misinformation. And I think you described somewhere that, in a sense, what this was about was the use of the technology to manipulate public opinion. Mm -hmm. And then these people left and dispersed to other parts of the world. Is that right? Here's the interesting part of the story. After the election, the U.S. presidential election is when big money is spent on campaigns, hundreds of millions of dollars. And so after a U.S. presidential election, these campaign consultants go off to the other democracies, Canada, Oz, New Zealand, the U.K. They go to Scandinavian countries and Germany, and they, they put into place the techniques they practiced in the U.S. election. Then they go one step further. They go to the emerging democracies, uh, Indonesia, India do consulting work, and then they go further to Saudi Arabia and Russia and China and practice the political communication arts there. And then everybody comes back to D.C. in time for the next presidential cycle. So there's this sort of global movement of political campaign consultants that involves uh, developing edgy new things in the U.S. and then applying them on citizens in the rest of the world. There's an interesting irony there because... This is the kind of process that we've observed with, as it were, traditional political consultants. I'm thinking like the consultants that the Conservative Party has used in this country. And these are people who, whose expertise we thought was simply in polling, in TV messaging, 
in TV advertising and things like that. But what was starting in a way was to discover that people who, who I would regard as being interesting geeks actually did the same thing. I think that's right. The political communication for a long time was about rhetoric. Now it's about databases. And um, different ideologies seem to have different ways of doing this work. So, and I think this is consistent even in the UK and Canada, other parliamentary democracies. The conservative political consultants tend to be more professionalized than the far left ones. They tend to work for consulting houses and wear suits and ties or professional dress. They tend to have more money to spend with, more money to play with. They tend to do more aggressive data mining. They tend to do more invasive things. So their job is as professional consultants to get their person elected. And we can quibble about things afterwards. Once your person's in office, you can debate the ethics of what you've done. But, but conservative political campaign consultants tend to be more aggressive and professionalized. Democrats, labor, far-left people tend to still want to get their people elected, but they discuss this stuff more. They in-house debate whether you actually need to merge the data, and they feel guilty about it. They pass data along in ways that they probably shouldn't, but they're not professionals from PricewaterhouseCoopers. They're a friend of a friend who went to college or shared a dorm room, and you make a call and you it's, it's more social ties. It tends not to be professional relationships. And yeah, it ends up with different kinds of messaging. You then go and you do a study of this technology deployed in uh, societies which are predominantly Muslim, I think. Is that right? Uh, but at any rate, societies where there's a tradition of authoritarianism and perhaps of religious domination. Now, what made you make that switch? You know, if the question's what impact does technology have on politics... The first chapter is about major democracies where the big money is spent. The second chapter is about emerging democracies, countries that aren't used to having open political conversations. And for a variety of kind of professional reasons, I got involved with a project to study the Internet's arrival in Tajikistan. We were deliberately looking for a country that was as far off the Internet as possible so that we could go and be there to watch it arrive in 2004. And, you know, sort of a difficult writ, but looking around the world, the country with the lousiest information infrastructure was, at that point, was in Central Asia. We picked Tajikistan partly for safety reasons. And I went and did some field work in the summer in Dushanbe and wanted to see if maybe the story about technology's impact on politics had nothing to do with voters. Political scientists are fascinated by voters. They spend all their time talking about voters, modeling voters, executive turnover, so whether the leadership changes is the second important, most important thing to most political scientists. So politics, small-p politics that happens between votes is less interesting. Legislative issues that emerge between elections, less interesting. Cultural politics uninteresting for most formal political science. So we thought the interesting story from Tajikistan might involve a state capacity or the capacity to respond to citizen needs. And you know, we're not trying to, we weren't trying to excuse authoritarianism at that point. We were looking for other ways that the Internet might improve public life. 
And after doing Tajikistan, I ended up visiting several other countries with significant Muslim populations, um, Tanzania, doing a little work in North Africa. And so I wanted to write a comparative study about how technology might be impacting very closed societies that were closed for the same reason. Most Muslim countries are closed for very similar reasons. They cordon off the internet to protect their culture. So they do surveillance and censorship because they're trying to prevent art from gay artists or political images from Hollywood or porn right, from coming into their country. And that's the excuse for surveillance and censorship. So I set out to see if there were major changes in countries with significant Muslim communities that use this as an excuse for censorship. And there the interesting finding was that the internet was having a good impact on several things that we might think of as small p politics that have nothing to do with elections, but I would argue are extremely important. The relationship between men and women, gender politics, was significantly changing in the mid-2000s. Women were able to talk about problems with mullahs or imams who were not the imam or mullah of their community. They were able to discuss what love means in cultures where marriage is arranged, with imams based in London or Los Angeles. And that created new opportunities for small p politics, gender conversations that can only happen on the internet. There were conversations about what democracy looks like, what it means to have a system where you can have religious freedom and open expression. Kids were looking at YouTube videos and watching Hollywood movies. They were ripping content out of Hollywood, but discovering what political life was in other countries. Again, small p politics. Most political scientists don't care about that stuff. But that was a significant change that the internet did make, and I think it was a positive change. I think you said later, perhaps this is just the benefit of hindsight, but you did say somewhere that from that work you could now discern a direct arc to the Arab Spring, for example. Yes. So that book, I played around with some fuzzy logic models. Fuzzy logic is a modeling system basically borrowed from computer science, right? It's this funny application that was originally developed to help the Japanese build the perfect rice cooker. Now some people are using it in the social sciences. Basically, it lets you play with different variables that you think are important with a real comparison set. So most political scientists, when they do their big, large-end modeling, have to imagine other universes where things did or didn't happen. You inflate your cases and you speak of explained variation in a way that's hypothetical, imagining an infinite number of iterations. With fuzzy logic, you just play with the real experience. And so there really are about 75 countries with significant Muslim populations where public life has either gotten better or worse. And fuzzy logic helps you figure out the patterns there. In the end, the book argued that the internet was having a significant positive impact on domains of political life. There were two countries at that point that did not fit the model. Those countries were Egypt and Tunisia. The book was published by the press in December 2010. So within a month, Egypt and Tunisia, things either fell into place or fell apart, depending on your perspective, they demonstrated that young people were developing their political identities in ways a traditional political scientist wouldn't capture, and they got rid of dictators that had been there for 30 or 40 years, right? 
the fuzzy logic idea is interesting because much of the retrospective analysis of, say, the Arab Spring tends to take a, a bipolar view of these things. It's that things either work or they don't work. And I guess much of the argument since I was thinking, for example, of an influential piece that Malcolm Gladwell wrote in The New Yorker after the Arab Spring saying, essentially, Twitter doesn't create revolutions. So the, the response has been, yeah, well, it was very exciting and it was very interesting and we thought it was a big deal. And actually, look what's happened to Egypt. Makes no difference. I think that the use of Twitter, say, or Facebook or social media has become a news peg for journalists. So when people tell a story about a conflict, they tell the story about the conflict, and then they look for a social media angle. There's second articles invariably about social media. I'd also say that it is impossible to tell a story of modern conflict or political change without some internet angle. So I wouldn't argue that the internet has been the single cause of any major political outcome, but it's very difficult to describe the Arab Spring without acknowledging the young people who put their content on Facebook pages and Twitter, then inspired young people in Egypt to do the same thing, who then inspired people in Morocco and Djibouti and a dozen other countries to hit the streets. Now, Gladwell's still correct in that face-to-face conversations help draw people out to protest injustice, but the calculation we make about whether to go into the streets and face rubber bullets or tear gas involves weighing the risks of non-participation. Right, So staying at home and living for another 40 years under Mubarak's son was one of the options. And... You know, in a sense, one of the markers of regime collapse now is the moment where the dictator calls the national phone company and tries to switch, turn off the digital switches. That moment when the internet goes dark in a country has become a marker of contemporary political crises. So to me, it also doesn't make sense to tell the story of political change without spending some time thinking about the internet. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Then thinking about those first two books, the first one is an exploration of how this technology has been used in democracies and elsewhere for manipulating public opinion. And then the second book shows that in authoritarian societies of various kinds, it nevertheless has had some of the empowering and enabling effects that we utopians always hoped it would have. So you're left with this sort of dichotomy of these two experiences that you've had and written about and the rest of it. And then you come to the third book, which is the one you've written, the most recent one, about the Internet of Things. And I'm wondering how that fits in this arc of yours. That book is my favourite book that nobody else likes. So it's my attempt to write a public book that looks ahead, and in the social sciences we're not really supposed to do prediction or model the future. 
So my goal here was to take what we had learned from the first internet and see if any of that wisdom, understanding, could help us be ready for the next internet. And I call it the next internet because I do think it will be such a fundamentally different information infrastructure that we need to plan and be ready and think now about how to integrate it with our political institutions. So the Internet of Things is not one you'll experience with your mobile phone, it's not one you use a browser to engage with, it's fully immersive, uh, it collects your behavioral data, um, in fact it collects almost perfectly behavioral data. So we're talking about light bulbs, right, with chips and door handles, and uh, televisions with embedded cameras, it's anything with a battery pack, a chip, a sensor, and an address on the internet sort of what defines it. And within a few years, everything that is human-made will have a chip in it. So I think what connects these books is my hope that it is never too late to try and change what might seem like a logical outcome. The Internet of Things, if it rolls out the way it seems to be rolling out, will be the last tool for political expression in that it will generate so much data. You know, we talk about big data, but it'll generate gargantuan data. There's no word for what it'll generate, and the lobbyists will love it. Some government agencies might use it to make good public policy decisions, but for the most part, any political inference that we can make out of your behavioral data collected over the Internet of Things will be bought and sold and used to influence policy. Many people feel about the Internet of Things. I mean, the, the, at least if you talk to professional computer scientists about it, um, broadly speaking, insofar as they think about this aspect of technology, they think it's a security nightmare, which it mm. probably is. But what, what's interesting for me, as an observer of your work, is that in the book you appear to be saying, We're go this is going to happen anyway. There's no way of stopping it. And secondly, if it happens, uh, it might be terrible. Uh, on the other hand you have a view that it will have effects that none of us would have predicted. For example, one of the things that I found extraordinary about the book is the idea that the Internet of Things means a new kind of global stability. You call it Pax Technica, which is a throwback to, I guess, to earlier empires. And it's because there's the domination of, of the world by some technical standards and by some strange sort of collaboration between... Westphalian states on the one hand and a number of huge corporations on the other. That seemed to me to be a very interesting step. Leave aside the accusation that you're a technological determinist. I agree with you that this stuff is coming and there's nothing much we can do about it. But you're the first person I've read who said, look, this is going to have geopolitical implications. This stuff is as big as nuclear weapons were, say. That may explain why, as you said yourself, so many people appear to dislike it. It's making very bold claims. It might seem bold because many of us don't actually have more than a handful of IoT devices in our possession. So at the moment, you know, the average household has seven or eight connected devices, according to UNESCO, I think was the latest figure. And the industry projections, and industry is always bullish, but industry says there'll be 50 million chips by 2020. And that's not including dust satellites, drones, our existing mobile phone infrastructure. It's 
many times more the population of humans. And the actual number may vary by battery technology, how good, you know, uh, whether these devices are always on or always generating data. But, you know, at least with the last internet, if you really did not want to be online, you could move to Alaska or not get a Facebook page. And you could go on vacation and genuinely disconnect. If your neighbor has installed a smart light bulb on their front porch, it will collect behavioral data on you, even if you've refused to put these devices in your household. So if a, an industry lobbyist can purchase your credit card records and merge those with data about your purchasing habits from Amazon, say, and also connect that with you know your dietary habits in your refrigerator, the milk lobby will have almost perfect information about what kinds of milk standards should be set to satisfy their customers. Now, milk's the the easy topic. The tougher thing involves, you know, if women purchase contraceptives on their credit cards, that information is valuable to the right to life movement or the pro-choice campaigners. Marrying data about your actual habits with a political inference equips them. They'll send you their literature. And we can't prevent the rollout of the IoT. I'm not sure I'd want to do that. I'd want to build it as an infrastructure for civic engagement, and there's some ideas in the book on how to do that. So if we could choose to share our data with hospitals, uh, you know, so the, the, the companies that build the infrastructure can still get access to the data, but if we as citizens can choose to share our data with researchers or public agencies, we should be allowed to do that. If we can tithe, if we can give some of our bandwidth to our favorite co-op, we should be able to. And a few things like that would really help make this civil infrastructure something that, uh, that we can involve in our political lives if we want to. One of the other proposals, if I remember correctly, in, in the book is, is that any internet-connected device which is collecting behavioral data on you, you should be able to find out who is the ultimate beneficiary of that. It's, it's qui bono all over again. Who's going to benefit from this? Because that, at the moment, is one of the terrible things about this this general collection of, of data. There are a number of proposals in, in your book which look like very good ideas in principle. But looking at the history of, of this stuff, a cynical interpretation would be this is wishful thinking by a well-meaning liberal. Yes, I'd say the... So the more fantastic idea in this is the idea of micropayments, right? Getting industry to give you small fractions of a, of a penny each time they use your data to benefit. I think it'll be impossible to reconfigure the internet advertising structure to reward each user for the data that they give up. That's one of the rival plans, and I don't think it's practical. The reason it may not be so fantastic is that every once in a while, the European Union does something that's um, also bold. Not everybody likes it, and you know there's always a long process before they make a decision. But once in a while, they make a policy innovation that sets some standards, communicates some expectations about public behavior, and gives Microsoft a slap or Google a slap. And so the European Union might actually be the political actor that could force some of this good stuff to happen. In a way, you you could say that the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, which they have just issued and which is now, which will next year become law across the European Union, is an example of that. 
So, for example, I, I think it seems to embed a right of a citizen to have an explanation for an algorithmically made decision. So that, that's quite radical. What that means, however, in the context of this society at the moment, with Brexit looming over it, is that essentially, if any of this technology is going to be controlled, the only show in town is the European Commission. Is that right? It doesn't look that way. The European Union is the most creative, the most, as a government agent organization, it seems to spend the most resources thinking about this stuff. They, of course, do tend to over-regulate in some ways, and you know some of the fine structures are pretty onerous. But there's another Internet of Things emerging in China. It's almost like there will be several Internets of Things. The Chinese one is being built from the, the ground up as an infrastructure for surveillance, and they're doing a good job exporting their infrastructure to Africa and other parts of Southeast Asia. There seems to be an Internet of Things evolving in the United States that's free-for-all, Wild West, no government oversight at all. Uh, lots of competing standards, lots of platforms that don't talk to each other. And in some of the fieldwork for that book, I was quite happy to meet engineers who would admit that in private they actually would like a little bit of government guidance. Because just a, a few standards set by a government agency gives engineers something to design to. And a world of multiple competing platforms with an Apple ecology that's totally distinct from a Google one or an Amazon one, those are closed-off worlds. Could I turn to the, the consequences of an IoT world that you identify in the book, which I think is, is really interesting because it's, it shows how technology, as it were, makes the transition to politics and perhaps also one day to political science. The first one is that the power in a, an IoT society will be determined by who, who controls, who determines the technical standards. That's an old idea in a way of network power, okay, and I, I, think it's, I think it's right. But then you say, interestingly, that once this technology gets hold of the globe, as it were, then the incentives for open warfare reduce. In a comprehensively networked world, cyber warfare is a bad idea. And so in, in, a, in an odd way, you seem to say that the strange kind of macabre stability we had as a result of mutual assured destruction in the post-war period with nuclear weapons, we're going to have a different kind of stability, but it comes about because of this technology. That's a very interesting idea, and I hadn't heard it before. Do people push back at you on, on that? That deterrence argument is de uh, definitely borrowed from the literature on nuclear, explaining why the nuclear deterrence seemed to work. I think... I get two kinds of pushback on the book. The one is from social scientists who say that this forward-looking stuff just can't work or doesn't work, or this is a public book and doesn't have the same attributes as a scholarly manuscript that they would recognize. Then I get pushback from technologists who say that it's not really about the Internet of Things, because I tried to take what happened with the first Internet to see what we might learn, extrapolate for the next Internet. It's not a book of hyperbole. And I think there's other researchers who go too far, or economists who talk about the exciting machine age, how everything's going to be solved. We'll all have our own artificial intelligence that'll defend us from fake news, right? that'll protect us and make our purchases. And that kind of, I don't know, effervescence is, is also not helpful. So going between research that ends yesterday with evidence collected yesterday and research that helps us think ahead but isn't bubbly and silly, frankly, is really hard. Another point in the book where I think there's a bridge between 
the technology and, as it were, politics or geopolitics, is your assertion, essentially, that instead of facing a clash of civilizations, which is the way we frame things now, the clash that's coming will be a clash over technical standards for this internet of things. Now, I could imagine for the average political scientist that's kind of weird. Absolutely, because it means acknowledging that something material or inanimate will constrain the options available to political actors. And most social scientists imagine that these constraints, they might be resource-based, but constraints are usually other social actors. So, you know, admitting that your computer screen or the phone you've decided to purchase or the light bulb you decided to purchase might shape your political options is, is alien. It's, it's new. It's a new way of thinking about things. May I take us back to your question about Brexit? Because on this thing with civilizational competition based on technology standards, the UK is in a really interesting position, given that it's leaving a union that might have offered some protections in this IoT world. So they'll get to choose. Do they want whatever the EU comes up with? Because that is a fairly large market, right? 400 million some odd consumers that will be buying IoT infrastructure. When the EU sets some standards, designers will, they may design for China, they may design for the US, they'll also have to design for Europe. So do British citizens want the IoT that Europe will help structure? Do they want the open market chaos and excitement and all the innovation that comes with market rules? You know, will they want the IoT standards of the US? Let's assume they don't choose Chinese IoT standards, although Chinese manufacturers do sell more goods here. They sell the kinds of Wi-Fi routers and technologies that Americans won't let into their country. So but let's say policymakers in this country won't choose Chinese IoT standards. What's going to happen here? I, I actually don't know the answer, but it's the UK is in a really interesting position. In the next four or five years, policymakers will have to have to choose. I'd like to turn to one other topic, which now figures in your current work, which is your work on, I think you call it computational propagandas, which is the study of, in a sense, the phenomena that we have begun to observe in a serious way since 2016 about about the ways in which social media affect democracy. And in your inaugural lecture, I think you, you, the question you set yourself was, are social media killing democracy? And your answer is interesting because I think you're saying we don't have enough evidence to make that claim as such, but what we do have is evidence now that it is weakening democracy. And you had a nice phrase in which you said, I think the, the prime effect that we can currently log is that social media are damaging, as it were, our immune system in the public sphere. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's wearing down our ability to distinguish good, good information from bad. And for a democracy to be healthy, you need voters who have access to good information so they make good decisions. And then you need the politicians to be able to evaluate evidence. And you know, good and bad are normative, I guess, but in the last year we've seen examples of poor quality information circulating very widely over social media. And you've also found that, I think, one of the reasons why this bad information is so successful and so apparently powerful is because of some human weaknesses. You call it selective exposure, I think. 
for some reason, human beings are not very good at making distinctions between um, stuff that's dodgy and stuff that's not. And my question is, what could we do about it? Well, I think the platforms have been designed to take advantage of the our weaknesses, the weaknesses in how we socialize. So messages that are in all capital letters with lots of exclamation marks or are negative or have crazy pictures or, you know, sexy pictures. Those are the things that people tend to circulate. Humans also have some good qualities. There's good experimental research on how negative herding tends not to occur. So when people make a poor quality edit to Wikipedia, other people tend to go in quickly and fix it. It's very rare in a small system where people know each other that mistakes or poor quality information continues to survive. So there are ways of designing social network applications that take advantage of the good things that happen in small groups. Operationally, what this means is that Facebook or Twitter could do some public service ads. They could share information about how Russians bought ads during major elections in the West to manipulate outcomes. They could participate as actors in a democracy and share. So we can design for democracy, and I think we should spend time thinking about how to, how to do that better. Just on that, given that, they have, that social media and the technology platforms on which they run now have such a central role in our public sphere, is it not something to be learned from television? I mean, for example, in the United Kingdom and in, in other European countries, I think, because TV is only possible because of using a public resource, which is the electromagnetic spectrum, then television companies and broadcasters have legal obligations laid upon them by governments, for example, about being fair and balanced and all that kind of stuff. That used to be true in the United States as well, but it was abandoned quite a long time ago. Is there a case, therefore, for saying, well, the new TV, so to speak, are social media, and we therefore have to think about legislating, regulating them in that way, at least in the sense that they affect our politics. Yes, absolutely. These, these platforms are the primary means by which most people experience news. There's certainly larger numbers of people who watch television news regularly, but there's research on how people interact with news and go exploring after they hear an interesting news story about how they accidentally get news on their phone quickly during the day, so daily sort of casual encounters with news is, has increased. We can talk separately about the news model, the, the economic model for how news is, pro is produced, but the platforms are the primary means of political communication today, and often they, they share content, video content, that was produced by, for television, right? So I agree, a logical thing to do would be to hold some public service expectations to these, these companies. They insist that they're data companies, or they're startups. They're just technology startups, right? They're, or their goal is just to organize information. Or they don't editorialize, they just reflect what their users contribute. They don't want to interfere with their users. But I think the moment for industry self-regulation has passed, right? After Brexit and the U.S. election, that's not even a policy strategy, really. Phil Howard's most recent book is called Pax Technica, How the Internet of Things May Set Us Free or Lock Us Up. And the first thing I did after I listened to that conversation between Phil and John was I bought it for my Kindle. 
John will be blogging about this and we will tweet the links to that. If you enjoy this podcast and you have a moment to rate us on iTunes, please do that. And please join us again next week. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. I'm almost completely recovered, by the way. So I, so I took that to mean that you're always in danger of relapsing. I mean, I, when you say yeah, recovering I, utopian, I, I thought that the joke was, yeah, therefore, I mean, if I go into the company of utopians and they offer me a drink, there's I'm always sorry. a danger. <laughs> Is that what it means? <laughs> okay, because that's one of the things I quite liked about it. I always thought that you, like, you have to always be very careful when you see a party invitation, you kind of think... Well, I'm a recovering utopian, and there are a lot of utopians here. And you know, when it gets late, I might my guard might be down. And... The, the, uh, y- yes. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.